the whole scenario starting with Jesus feeding the multitudes with five loaves and a few fishes. And then he sent the disciples, ushered them into the boat, told them to go to the other side, which wasn't literally all the way across Galilee. It was from Bethsaida in the northeast uh, corner of Galilee over to Capernaum, which was kind of dead center in the middle of the north shore of Galilee. So about between three and five mile journey. Remember, they're out there in the boat. It's storming like crazy. They think they're going to die. They're going to drown. Jesus comes walking on the water. So they land the boat in Capernaum. And all the people who had been part of that, or many of them anyway, who had been part of that miraculous feeding, they wanted to keep following after Jesus. He really got their attention. They wanted some more miracles. So they wound up, some boats came over from Tiberias. And when those boats arrived there in Bethsaida, that area, they got on the boats and followed Jesus over to Capernaum. And so he begins to engage them in conversation. And in verse uh, 28 and 29, then they said to him, he's challenging them, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. So basically what they're asking Jesus is, you know, what good works can we do uh, to get on God's good side, if you will? How can we be a part of this program? And Jesus says, It's not your works. This is the work of God that you may believe in him who sent me. So our part, and he's telling this to these people there in Capernaum, our part is to believe, and then God does a work in us. We don't work to gain his approval. We already have his approval, not because we deserve it. We are sinners, saved by grace. We have his approval because he created us to have a love relationship with him. But the final approval comes when we embrace him, when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we allow him to wash us and cleanse us with his shed blood. So we had left off there in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him who's, whom he sent. In other words, God the Father sent me, Jesus. The work of God begins when you believe in me. And then, verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you, what work will you do? Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning as we look through these scriptures together. We pray that your word would have a transformative impact in our lives, in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there it is. We'll read this verse again. Therefore they said to him... He's challenging them, this is the work of God that you believe in me, basically. Believe in him whom, whom God sent. But they, put, they throw the challenge right back at him. What sign will you perform then? And the word sign here literally means miracle. What miracle will you perform 
that we may see it and believe you. Wait a minute. Hold on. They'd already seen the miracle of the loaves and fishes and quite possibly some others. Uh, There's a pretty strong indication from the Scriptures and from common sense that Jesus performed a lot more miracles than the ones that are recorded in the Gospels. John says at the end of his Gospel, if we wrote down everything Jesus did and said, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain the books that would be required to record all the things that he did in just that short span of time, three years. But they're asking for another miracle. You know what? For those truly seeking God and His truth, that miracle alone should have been more than enough, right? The feeding of the 5,000 plus 5 plus 10 wives, children, more like 15, 20,000 perhaps. It's interesting because Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had been a Pharisee, a very legalistic, hardcore pharisaical Jewish rabbi who hunted down Christians to have them executed. In fact, Paul's the one who held the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death, the first New Testament Christian martyr. Here Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, Gentile believers in Corinth and Greece, for Jews request a sign and Greeks Seek after wisdom, which there's nothing wrong with wisdom, but in the book of Proverbs and Psalms, it says the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have a fear of the Lord God Most High, you will never obtain true wisdom. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. So Greeks are more focused on the intellectual. Jews focused on the miraculous. But we, Paul says, listen to this. We preach Christ crucified. Paul was a very, very learned man, but he said he had to set aside all of that and count it as dung for the sake of knowing Christ. We preach Christ. Very simple message. The enemy's strategy for thousands of years, and especially the last 2,000 since Christ came on the scene, was to take God's very simple message and convolute it and twist it and complicate it. And that's why we have so many different religions, so many different denominations, so many different doctrines and theologies and so forth, because once Christ came and brought salvation to the human race, the devil's only remaining tool in his toolbox was to try to make it so convoluted, so polluted, so diluted, so twisted that nobody could understand it. And yet it's not hard to understand. It's so simple. And Paul simplifies it right here. Okay, the Jews looking for the miraculous. The Greeks are looking for the intellectual. We preach Christ crucified. A, to the Jews, a stumbling block. The Jews never expected that their coming Messiah, their Savior, their Deliverer, would have to die a criminal's death They expected him to come as a conquering hero. And he was and is a conquering hero because he conquered the devil, devil, he conquered sin, he conquered death. 
But they expected him to come and conquer the Romans and restore the throne of David, which he will do when he returns very soon. Verse 24, to those who are called, the Bible says many are called but few are chosen. Why is that? Because God calls everyone, really. But the only ones that are chosen are the ones that choose him. I've said it before, Pastor Chuck Smith, when addressing the issue of Calvinism, and people say, well, you know, um, you're either... You're either predestined or you're not. You're either chosen or you're not. And if you're not predestined, if you're not chosen, you might as well go eat worms because you're never going to get saved. That's kind of how Calvinism is. It's called irresistible grace. If you're called, if you're chosen, you're going to get saved whether you want to or not. And if you're not called, you might as well just go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's a thumbnail definition of Calvinism, which two-thirds of American churches today are steeped in Calvinistic doctrine. Did you know that? That's the doctrine that teaches once saved, all, always saved. I had a conversation, I've shared this before, with a young man on a plane uh, coming back from Honduras. And he'd been encouraged to go on the trip because a good friend of mine was wanting to try to help him get his life on track. And he had gotten in, involved and engaged in the homosexual lifestyle. He'd been brought up, I believe it was a Baptist church. It was definitely a Calvinistic church. And when I began to talk to him about whether or not he had any concerns about what might happen to him when this life was over, considering he was engaging in an unbiblical lifestyle, which the Bible says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, his reply was he, he was not and the least bit concerned because he was once saved, always saved. But anybody who believes that you can claim to be once saved, always saved, and then go off and deliberately practice a lifestyle that's condemned by the Word of God, you are deceived. You are deceived. I do believe that God wants us to be secure in our salvation. Pastor Chuck always said, you are eternally secure in Christ. No man can snatch you out of the Father's hands. God would never take your salvation away. In fact, the Bible says you're marked, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But if you start dabbling in that area, how much can I get away with and still be saved? You're definitely, your heart and your mind are in the wrong place. If you're looking to see how much you can still get away with sinning and go to heaven, I wouldn't trade places with you for a million dollars. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we might kind of hope that we maybe might be saved. No, we have security in Christ. But I don't believe the Bible teaches, like I said. Now, the Calvinists would tell you, well, if you walk away, that means you were never really saved. The Arminianists, by the way, God isn't an Arminianist and he's not a Calvinist. He's God. God wrote the Bible long before these guys ever came along. The Arminianist would tell you, yeah, you were really saved, but now you're not. You know what God says? Just stick with me and don't worry about it. As long as you stick with me, like Pastor Chuck said, 
You're eternally secure in Christ. I've said this so many times. I'll say it again. I've never met what we call a backslidden Christian who felt secure. When you know you're not right with God, do you feel secure? How do you feel secure? You get right with God and you stay right with God. And since you'll never be perfect in this life, we don't want to sin, but we have, we're battling this dual nature. We have the new man, the new woman, born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, but guess what? The bad guy is still down in there too. The old man, the flesh. And we will battle that for the rest of our lives. The only way to stay in right relationship with God is we have to continually walk in confession and repentance of sin. The good news is, no matter how many times you go to God, He will forgive you. Peter, remember Peter was wanting to sound really spiritual before God, before Jesus. He says, Lord, if someone sins against me, uh, how many times should I forgive them? You know, it's, and I forget the number Peter uses, but it's like, you know, he's sounding real benevolent, like, you know, seven times. Jesus said 70 times seven, which is a Jewish idiom for an unlimited number of times. In other words, he's sending a message to us now, the devil, here's why you don't want to go there. You don't want to keep doing the same sin over and over again and asking God's forgiveness. He will forgive you. But the devil's going to come along and he's going to beat you up and he's going to say, you know what? God's done with you. It's all over. You've done it over and over again. You keep doing the same sin, asking God for forgiveness. He's not going to forgive you anymore. You're done. That's the condemnation of the devil. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, again, you're playing with fire because the devil, you're giving the devil ammunition to use against you. Again, God will forgive you no matter how many times you fall. But the ideal, the goal, is to try not to do that with God's help, right? Okay, that's all extra, that's free too. No extra charge. Okay. <clears throat> Let me make this point. Those who constantly demand that God prove himself, that's what these people are doing here. They just witnessed the miracle of the loaves and fishes, and they turn right around and say to Jesus, what miracle are you going to perform then? Those who constantly demand that God prove himself will never be convinced. Do you know that? Have you noticed that? I mean, you could take that down on the human level or you can take it on the spiritual level. If someone does not want to know the truth, if they don't want to be convinced, you can put the truth right in front of their face and they will deny it. We're seeing that all around us in our world today. Nobody wants to hear the truth. And if you tell them the truth, then you are a bad person. You're a white supremacist. You're a racist. You're a terrorist. You're a domestic terrorist. You're a right-wing, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, Jesus-loving Christian. Yes, I am. Hallelujah. Those who constantly demand that God prove himself, why the nerve of some people, the gall of some people 
Who do you think you are to demand anything of God? You ought to be on your face before him, crying out in repentance and thanking him for sending his son to die on the cross for you. And by the way, Romans chapter 1, it tells us God has already revealed himself through creation. Oh, what miracle are you going to do? How about creating everything? How does that work? Is that good enough for you? Look around you. Everything you see, God made it. Oh, but you're demanding another miracle, really? Well, here's one. How about if God just zaps you and disintegrates you? That would be a miracle. Maybe a good idea in some cases. He has revealed himself through creation. Read Romans chapter 1. And furthermore, he has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ, which in spite of what many people say, there is absolutely irrefutable documented historical evidence that Jesus Christ is a real person who came into this world 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead on the third day. So here's Jesus. Um, um, they said, what work will you do? What sign will you perform then? What work will you do? What did Jesus, we read this at the beginning. What did Jesus tell them? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What work will you do? And he's telling them, no, 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 no. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. They'd already witnessed the miraculous power of God through his son. The impetus was now on them to believe. And this is basically true for the entire human race. Everybody keeps trying to put it back on God. Okay, God, what are you going to do for me today? What are you going to show me? What miracle are you going to do? No, the impetus is on you to believe in what he's already done. That he created all things. That he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. The impetus, the ball's in our court. It's been said, religion is man's efforts and attempts to reach God. Christianity, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's God's attempt to reach man. God reached out to us. It's now our responsibility to reach back. Okay? And we don't even have to reach that high because he brought himself down to our level. The unenlightened perspective is this. In fact, we even have a state called the Show Me State. It's Missouri, right? The Show Me State. The unenlightened human perspective is this. Show me and I will believe. You ever heard of a guy named Thomas? Doubting Thomas? How would you like to go down through history known as Doubting Thomas? I imagine he's up there in heaven. I know he's up there in heaven with the Lord, so it's probably not that bothered by it. But how many times does he hear that drifting up over the past 2,000 years? Doubting Thomas. How would you like to be called Doubting Thomas? But that's the human perspective, the unenlightened human perspective. Show me and I will believe. Now, it, it, it sounds logical, 
on, on an earthly plane, a terrestrial plane. Show me and I will believe. But here's God's perspective. By the way, which one's correct? God's. Here's what it is. Believe and I will show you. See, show me and I will believe. There is no faith required there, is there? But believe and I will show you. That requires faith. Jesus to Martha, as he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says in John eleven forty, Did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So you might ask someone, do you want to see the glory of God? Yeah, I do. Then believe, and you will see the glory of God. And they did see the glory of God when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to give you my little definition of faith, and then I'm going to give you Hebrews chapter 11. This is my version. Faith is believing what you can't see. The opposite is refusing to believe that which is right in front of you. I kind of already said that a few minutes ago. This is a little more direct way of saying it. Faith is believing what you can't see. The opposite is refusing to believe that which is right in front of you. The Bible says it better than I do. Let me read that. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And if you go down to verse 6, the writer of Hebrews, which we believe is Paul. There's some debate, but I think it's Paul. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There are those who believe God exists, but they don't believe he's a rewarder. They believe he's a punisher. He is a rewarder of those who diligently, that means earnestly, sincerely, wholeheartedly seek Him. And there are those who say, hey, well, God knows where I live. He's got my number. No, no, it doesn't work that way, folks. You have to seek Him. Seek after Him. He is a rewarder of those. So there's faith from Hebrews 11. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's why I'm constantly telling you, pray for your friends, your loved ones, your family members, co-workers. God, please give them the gift of faith because it is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2. Give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. And folks, the same faulty mentality that these Galileans that Jesus is speaking with, the same faulty mentality that they were operating under is still prevalent today. And that's this mentality. In order to believe, I need to witness with my own two eyes, I spy with my two eyes, a supernatural miracle supposedly from God. But watch this. Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? By the way, the sent comes from God. He's the one who sends. My friend Hugh and I were having a conversation about this. He's concerned about a church he's involved with that they're, they're setting all these crazy high standards for new pastors and leaders coming on staff, all kinds of degrees, bachelors, masters, blah, 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 PhD. And we were talking about the fact, none of the early Calvary Chapel guys that went out, the Greg Lorries, the Mike McIntoshes, the Raul Reeses, none of those guys went to Bible college, neither did I. I went to Chuck Smith Bible College. And by the way, none of the apostles went to Bible college. They went to Jesus College. Okay? Being sent by a human being only counts if God is the one behind it. There are a lot of people who send themselves and don't bear much fruit as a result or the wrong kind of fruit. How shall they preach unless they're sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by viewing miraculous signs. Is that what it says? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And yet we have this prevalent mentality it was prevalent in Jesus' day. It's prevalent today. In order to believe, I need to witness with my own two eyes a supernatural miracle, supposedly from God. God says, faith comes by hearing His Word. And therefore, it makes all the sense, this, this Bible right here, it makes all the sense in the world that one of the enemy's prime targets would be the Word of God. To dilute it, pollute it. Hence, we have all these weird, funky, flaky Bible translations today. The massage, also known as the message, which is littered with New Age thought and terminology, and countless others, including LGBTQ Bibles, because they need one too, so that they can remove and alter the verses where the Bible condemns their practices and where a growing majority of churches in America and all over the world really are deviating more and more from preaching and teaching the truth of God's word there's a thing called proof texting and that is where a particular teacher pastor preacher whoever could be anybody comes up with their own idea about who God is, what God says, so forth. And they will take and find certain Bible verses and take them out of context to try and prove their point. It's called proof texting. I mean, if you work at it hard enough, that's how every cult pretty much has gotten started by taking Bible verses out of context. There are Bible verses that the Mormons use claiming that they point to the coming of Joseph Smith. 
total hogwash, total garbage. But that's what happens. So that's why we go through the scriptures verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We don't believe in proof texting. We believe in God's text proving to us who he is, what he says, what he does. Okay? Look at this now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. I mentioned supernatural miracles supposedly from God. Watch this. The coming of the lawless one, also known as the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with, listen to this, with all power, signs, just like these people asked Jesus, what sign are you going to show us? What miracle? All power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Notice that. They did not receive the love of the truth. If you, if you want to know the truth, if you want to love the truth, then you have to receive it. You can reject it. You, you can say, you know what? Whatever the truth is, I want to know. Unless it's Jesus. That's how some people are, right? Show me some other truth. I don't want that truth. They refused to receive the love of the truth. And what happened? That they might be saved. It's the only way to be saved. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this reason, verse 11, God will send them strong delusion. Folks, 20 years ago, Chuck Missler, the late great Chuck Missler, said we're living in the age of deception. He was right. He's even more right now than he was then. God will send them strong delusion. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus says that three times. That will be a hallmark and trademark of the last days, worldwide deception. I, when people come to believe that men can be women and women can be men, would you call that deception? I think so. When people actually say a man can get pregnant, that's called deception. I think it was Justin Trudeau up in Canada who just had female... Uh, products placed in the men's restrooms. I would call that deception. It goes on and on and on, folks, and you know it. And the AI and all that is going to feed right into the deception. And people are going to begin to believe artificial intelligence over human intelligence. They're going to believe it over the truth of God's Word, and it's going to result in the one-world religion of the tribulation as well as the one-world economy and the one-world government. Okay. God will send them strong delusion. God says, if you want to be deceived, guess what? I'm going to help you out, if that's what you want. That they should believe the lie, and they already are, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But I wanted to key in on that part where it says 
the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So those who say, in order to believe, I need to witness with my own two eyes a supernatural miracle, they're going to be sucked right into this. The people living on earth in the last days, which we're in right now, by the way, will be deceived by power, signs, miracles, lying wonders. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. John 20, 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Fine, good, that's great. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That includes everybody in this room today. If you're a believer, God says you're blessed because you believed even though you've never seen him with your physical eyes. And then Peter, 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. How many agree with that? And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you want to look at a miracle? And this, I don't mean this in any weird New Age way, but if you are a born-again child of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, look in the mirror. You're a miracle. You could have never saved yourself. God has saved you. God has forgiven you. God has set you free. God has given you eternal life. Oh, I need to see a miracle. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and then look in the mirror. Okay? And I, like I said, please, I don't mean that in any weird... Because there are groups out there that have terminology like that. And it's very deceptive. They'll tell you... In fact, Warren's book, Evangelical, goes into it. Please don't misquote me on that. The miracle is that God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, has come to live inside of you. And you are born again by the Spirit of God. That is a miracle. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. There it is again. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Again, did the Ninevites get to see miracles? No. Unless you, well, Jonah was kind of a miracle. He got barfed up from a whale, <laughs> alive, possibly partially digested. At the very least, maybe his hair was bleached out, his beard. They repented of the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Me, Jesus. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Folks, we're living in that generation right now. We know sin has always been here, but the longer sin goes on unchecked, the worse it gets. We've seen in our own lifetime things we never thought possible. 
in terms of evil. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This generation will receive the lying signs and wonders of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Artificial intelligence, like we just looked at. Microchip technology. DNA-modifying vaccinations. It's all here, folks. And an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and they're going to get some signs, but it's not the signs that they're going to they're going to wish they hadn't gotten them. No sign will be given, Jesus says, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The one and only sign given by which all men must be saved is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's already happened. It tells us they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And that was before Jesus came. But salvation... The Bible teaches when you really dig in, in spite of all the rules and regulations and rituals of the Old Covenant, salvation has always been by grace through faith. The people of Nineveh were not saved by witnessing miracles. They were converted by the anointed, spirit-filled, God, spirit God-breathed preaching of Jonah. Now the disciples, how did it start for them? They heard the voice of the Lord. Jesus called them. He spoke to them. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they responded to his calling. They, they heard his voice and they responded. We hear his voice through the Holy Scriptures. They would then go on to witness his miracles and that strengthened their faith. But remember, it's not show me and I will believe. It's believe and I will show you. Mark 16, 17, and 18. These signs, miracles, will follow those who believe. What happens first? You believe. Then the signs follow. In my name they will cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. <laughs> we see evidence of most of these things in the New Testament actually taking place. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. These signs will follow those who believe. First comes belief, then come the signs. But hear me out. Listen to this. Think about this. If you never, and probably this is probably true for most of us here today, have never cast out a demon, at least not knowingly, but if you never cast out a demon, are you still saved? Yeah. Your salvation doesn't depend on you casting out a demon, does it? If you never speak in tongues, are you still saved? Some would say no, but some would be wrong. If you never take up a serpent, and there are churches that do that. And some have learned the hard way. Maybe it's not such a good idea. If you never take up a serpent, are you still saved? Yes. If you never drink deadly poison and survive, are you still saved? Jim Jones, Guyana, they all drank a deadly poison. Guess what? Lights out. If you never heal a sick person, now I believe as, as, as Christians, we're called when, when necessary, when the opportunity presents itself, we should pray for the sick, don't you think? Not just ourselves or our family members, but Anyone we come in contact with who's ill, 
injured, whatever, could I pray for you? Would you mind if I pray for you? But what if you never knowingly, at least, have ever healed a sick person? Are you still saved? Yes. These signs will follow those that believe. But if you don't believe, any sign that does follow you is not from God. There's a lot of fake signs out there, false signs, evil signs, satanic signs, demonic signs, and people are deceived by them. Oh, I forgot to read my articles today, but one of them is a growing number of after-school Satan clubs in America. I never in a million years dreamed that that would happen in our country. If you try to establish an after-school Bible club, you're going to have a hard time at a public school. But more and more they're allowing these after-school Satan clubs. Deception is here, folks. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And it gets right back into what we're talking about here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. I've coined that term in recent years as a result of what going on in the world with people identifying as men and women and animals and so forth. People who identify as Christians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus now. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not enough to give him lip service. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I declare to them, I will declare to them, says Jesus, wow, this is heavy, folks. I never knew you. It's not enough to claim that you know him. He needs to know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, these people did all the things we just talked about, folks. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did many wonders. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The one sign good is looking, God is looking for. We're talking about signs here. What sign are you going to show us, Jesus? Jesus says, God's work. What work are you going to do? God's work is that you believe in me. The one sign that God is looking for in the heart of a true believer is obedience. Ooh. Now that's a little tricky. That's a little touchy. I don't mind prophesying and casting out a demon here and there and so forth. But what? Oh, obedience. I don't know about that. I thought God was supposed to obey me. <laughs> Folks, if we live a life of obedience to God, then whatever signs He has in store for us, what happens? We'll follow. If we're living a life in obedience to God, walking in obedience to God, and God tells you to go witness to somebody, 
You're going to do it, aren't you? Sometimes we mess up. Lord, forgive me. I missed that opportunity. I saw it and I didn't, right? That's praise God for his grace, his forgiveness. But if we're walking in obedience to God and he says, that person's sick, you need to go pray for him. We're going to do it, right? The signs will follow, but the priority from God's perspective, and by the way, God's perspective is the right one, is that we obey him. The people who claim to have done all these miracles, they didn't even get in. I never knew you. Depart from me. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The most reliable source for knowing his will is his word. Feelings can be deceptive. People can give bad guidance, bad advice. God's word will never lead us astray. 1 John 5, 3-5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. You see, if you claim you love God and you're practicing a sinful lifestyle, you're living in sin with your boyfriend or girlfriend or significant animal. God knows what these days. If you're doing that, and you're not stopping doing it, if you're not repenting and turning away from it, and you say you love God, can I say something very rude to you? You are a liar. You're a liar. If you are practicing things and practice, the more you practice it, the better you get, right? I got to practice today. Some people are practicing homosexuality. Some people are practicing drug abuse, alcohol abuse, you name it. We have all kinds of ways of making excuses for it. The bottom line is, if you say you love God and that's the way you're living, you are a liar. The good news, you can stop lying. You can repent. You can confess your sins. You can ask God to forgive you, to fill you with his Holy Spirit and deliver you from these things, which, yes, they do become addictive. Sin is addictive. That doesn't make it right. Well, I can't help it. Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. If you remember him, you're as old as I am. <laughs> the devil made me do it, honey. That's how I say it. I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, a lot of people think God is rude. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're a brood of vipers. That's wooed. What was that character from Star Wars? That's so wooed. Anyway. I don't know if we're going to get through. Well, we'll have to stay a little late. Happy New Year. <laughs> okay. 1 John 5, 3 through 5. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. If you love God, you keep His commandments. Are you perfect? No. Will you stumble? Will you? Yes. Will He forgive you? Yes. But notice this. His commandments are not burdensome. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're walking in obedience to him, he will help you. He will strengthen you. He will help you to make the right choices, and he will help you to stand firm in those choices. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith that God has given us. 
Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How many believe that? Guess what? You're an overcomer. You're an overcomer. He, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Folks, I said this at the beginning in a little bit different way. Living for God is not nearly as complicated as we make it out to be. He is working miracles in our lives every day, even though we often don't see or recognize them. When we walk with the Lord, I'm going to read these verse, uh, lyrics now from the song that we sang earlier. Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Here's the chorus. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Why are a lot of people who say they believe in him not happy in Jesus? Listen to this. This is very biblical. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, because if you're not trusting him and you're not obeying him, then you will be the most miserable people of all. There's nobody on the planet more miserable than a Christian who's not walking in obedience to God. The sinner's out there having a great time. Sin is profitable, the Bible says, or beneficial for a season. At the end of the day, you will reap what you sow. But in the meantime, if you're a believer and you're not trusting and obeying, you're not going to be happy. And people will say, why would I want to be a Christian? You're miserable. And they would be right. No shadow can rise not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet. Looking forward to that. Or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. One more time on the chorus. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And then Micah 6, 6 through 8, we just sang this one too. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, we sang this too. He has shown you, O oh man or woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? I said it's not nearly as hard to follow God as we make it out to be. What does he require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly. To live a life characterized by doing the right thing all the time. We do fall short. But this should be our goal. This should be our strategy, our purpose in life. To do the right thing in every situation. And to treat others. We call it the golden rule. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what it means to do justly. To live justly. To love mercy. To be as merciful to others as God has been to you 
and love doing it. Not grudgingly. All right, I'll extend mercy. You don't really want to. James, in his book, says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. To be as merciful to others as God has been to you and love doing it. And then walk humbly with your God, never ceasing to remember and realize. And this is where a lot of people mess up, I think, as believers. They start to think there's something special. Hot stuff. I'm the king's kid. Get out of my way. Never ceasing to remember and realize you're a sinner saved by grace. Romans 12, 3. Paul writing here, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's what causes most of the problems in churches, folks. People thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. Why did they get blessed like that? I'm better than they are. I'm smarter than they are. I'm more eloquent than they are. I'm a better leader than they are. I give more money than they do. How do you know that? <laughs> Think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Three things. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I suggest let's let these things be our New Year's resolutions. Let's stand. I'm going to lower the lights a bit. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. First, I'd ask for a show of hands for those who have prayer requests today. You can see those all over the room. God sees your hand. I see your hand. Father, first of all, we do thank you for your word, the power, the strength. Uh, everything about your word, Lord, is just so exciting, inspiring, encouraging, uplifting, and challenging. Lord, help us to take these things to heart today, That what we've learned as we've studied your word together. And Lord, let us not be deceived by all that's going on around us. Keep our hearts and minds focused on you and the truth of your word. Lord, help us not to be sign seekers. Help us to be Jesus seekers, God seekers. Lord, with signs following, as we believe in you, as we obey you and trust in you, then you're going to do those things that you want to do in our lives. You're in control. You lead the way. We follow. But Lord, I lift up those with health issues today that are concerned about illness, sickness, disease, injury, please pour out your healing upon them. Lord, your grace, your mercy. Lord, for those who are um, perhaps struggling with some of these sinful activities we've talked about, Lord, uh, we can be trapped. We can f put ourselves in a place where we wind up getting trapped, and it seems almost impossible to get out, but we know nothing is impossible with you. So I pray for anyone here today struggling with a sin or multiple sins that have turned into addictions, whether it's alcohol, drug abuse, pornography, um, gambling, or there's any number of, of sinful activities that we can, we dip our toe in the water, then we step in a little further, and the next thing we know, we're drowning. I pray for deliverance, Lord. You said you came to set the captives free. I pray that you'd set those free who are captive to these sins. I pray that you give them hope, give them faith, give them strength, help them to come clean, 
to be open and honest with you, to admit those sins, to confess them before you, to repent and allow you to do a healing work in their lives. Pray for those, Lord, with uh, mental and emotional issues, anxiety, depression, so forth. Please pour out your healing upon them as well, Lord. We know that sometimes we do seek medical help, but we know that you're the great physician. Ultimately, you are the answer no matter what the problem is. So I pray that you would just touch the hearts and minds of those here today that are struggling with in their thought life, Lord. Your word tells us we're to take every thought captive to you. Help us to do that. Lord, we give your Holy Spirit permission to come inside of us and take those thoughts captive to deliver us from depression, anxiety, fear, doubt, worry, all those things that beset us. We, we confess them before you. We repent of them. We ask you to take them from us. Lord, we pray uh, finally for people with financial issues that you would strengthen their faith, help them to be good stewards with the resources they do have. Lord, sometimes we confess, Father, we can be wasteful. We can be not such good stewards with what you've given us. Help us to do better. And we ask you to provide for those in need and help us as a body whenever we become aware of a need to be able to meet it together, to stand together as the body of Christ, to help one another. We thank you, God, for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We lift up to you this new year that will be beginning shortly, that you would guide us and direct us as we move into a new year. And Lord, we do pray that these things we talked about today, trusting, obeying, believing, that you would help us to make those New Year's resolutions in our lives for your glory. And please receive our final offering of praise in Jesus' name.